of Mark. In chapter 1, Mark introduced Jesus with several impressive titles. Titles like the Christ and the Son of God. He showed Jesus doing all kinds of impressive works. Preaching and teaching with wisdom and power. Casting out demons, healing the sick, and cleansing a leper. And then in chapter 2, and in the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus gets into multiple conflicts with the scribes and Pharisees, some of the most respected and admired Jewish religious leaders of his day. And what we saw in those conflicts is that the main sticking point for the religious leaders, the reason they get so worked up over the words Jesus says, the company he keeps, the things he does or doesn't do, and when he does or doesn't do them. All of those conflicts come back to the question of Jesus's authority. Jesus is able to forgive sins, spend time with tax collectors and sinners without becoming unclean, and upend the scribes and Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath because Jesus has a divine authority that they don't. But instead of recognizing Jesus's authority and submitting to it, the religious leaders doubled down in their opposition to him. They are willfully ignorant. Their hearts are hardened. And they start looking for ways to destroy him. That's how the religious leaders responded to Jesus' authority. How have you? But as we move ahead to chapter 4, we encounter the first parable in the Gospel of Mark. Many of Jesus' most well-known and memorable teachings came in the form of parables. A parable can be a short story, a proverb, a saying, maybe even a kind of riddle that might seem inconsequential when you hear it at first, but actually has eternal significance. So we'll start this morning with the parable of the sower, allowing Jesus to teach us several eternally significant lessons in his own words. So open to Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take one home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that we have the privilege and the joy and the opportunity to hear your word today. That we have the privilege and the joy and the opportunity not just to hear someone standing on a stage and teaching it or preaching it. But we have the, the opportunity to read your word on our own time. Uh, we can open your word, read it, learn from it. Uh, and Father, we just ask that your word, no matter how we're hearing it, in our own time here on Sunday morning, in a small group on a weeknight, I pray that we would be shaped and formed and grown and matured by your word. Thank you for this incredible gift uh, that... We know you through your word. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you for Christ, the one who reconciles us to you by his broken body and shed blood. Thank you that he lived and died and rose and ascended and one day will return. And, Father, we live in that time in between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And I pray that as we wait for Jesus to return, that we would be the godly people you call us to be that we would live like the sons and daughters that you have declared us to be by faith. And Father, again, thank you for bringing us together this Sunday morning. Uh, even when life is hard, even when tragedy strikes, whether it's the ups and downs, the hills or the valleys of life, whatever 
we're coming from, you've brought us here together. And so I pray that we would make the most of this time, that it would benefit us, and that it would glorify you, what we say and do here today. We love you, we worship you, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a lot has happened since we left off at the beginning of Mark chapter 3. Crowds have continued to build around Jesus. People from all over the map are coming to him to be healed of their illnesses and delivered from demons. Even Gentiles are starting to come to Jesus. The word about him is spreading far beyond just his fellow Jews. Jesus has continued to choose, call, and appoint disciples. By now, he has 12 particularly close followers known as apostles. And this is a ragtag group, a handful of fishermen, at least one tax collector, and a political extremist thrown in for good measure. He's had yet another confrontation with the religious leaders. This time, they've gone as far as accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. But Jesus takes that opportunity to warn them of the judgment waiting for those who attribute his power to Satan rather than the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes it clear that there is no hope for those who reject him and reject the Holy Spirit. And finally, Jesus' biological family, likely his brothers, come to seize him because they think he's lost his mind. But Jesus uses that opportunity to redefine who his family really is. His family is not those who share his mother's DNA with him. Jesus' true family is all who do the will of God. So again, Jesus has been very busy in chapter 3. So busy that by the time we open chapter 4, Jesus is staring out at what might be the biggest crowd he's seen yet. So what will he tell them? Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus tells a story that anyone even remotely familiar with farming, or even just basic gardening, can probably understand. Every fall, I overseed our yard. And I'm not entirely sure how much good it's done, but it's just become part of my routine. So I figure that if even just 10% of the grass seeds that I spread actually take root and grow, then it would be worth $40 and an hour of my time once per year. 
Now, I'm not a farmer, and I'm not a gardener, but I've seen what Jesus is talking about. Seeds land in different places. Some of it goes in the flower bed by accident. Some ends up on the sidewalk. And some ends up on the soil where I actually want it to grow. This is a story about spreading seed that his audience, members of a highly agricultural society, could have agreed with. Nothing more. Right? Well, wrong. Jesus isn't really teaching about farming. He's not really teaching about gardening. He's getting at something much more significant. And that's part of how parables work. On the surface, the story appears to be relatively simple, practical, and maybe even trivial. But when you dig deeper, you learn that there is much more to it. A good parable can reveal truth while also concealing the truth. A parable is a hard saying that two people can hear, and yet only one might actually understand. One person may have ears to hear, and another may not. One example of this from somewhere else in the Bible is in 2 Samuel 12. That's when the prophet Nathan confronts King David about his sin with Bathsheba. David had slept with another man's wife and had her husband killed in battle when he discovered she was pregnant. And as Nathan comes and confronts David with his sin, Nathan doesn't just come out and say it. Instead, he tells David a parable. He gives him a story about a rich man who stole a poor man's most precious lamb. Eventually, with Nathan's help, David comes to understand that the story is not really about a rich man stealing a lamb. The story is about his own sin in stealing Bathsheba from her husband. The one who deserves punishment, the one who deserves death, is not the fictional rich man of Nathan's parable. The one who deserves punishment and death is David. Nathan's parable both concealed the truth and revealed the truth. That's what parables do. And Jesus is doing something similar with the parable of the sower. Again, this story isn't really about farming techniques. Jesus is teaching an eternally significant truth through what appears to be an inconsequential story about gardening. And ironically, Jesus' own disciples... The people closest to him, who know him best, who he handpicked in chapter 3, they don't understand the parable. And they ask Jesus for an explanation. And like Nathan did with David back in 2 Samuel 12, Jesus helps his disciples learn the lesson that they couldn't figure out on their own. Mark chapter 4, verse 13. We'll come back to verses 10 through 12. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. 
Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So the explanation is relatively straightforward. The seed being thrown around by the sower is the word. We could call it the gospel. At this point in the story, the gospel is the truth about who Jesus is. The Christ, the Son of God, what Mark told us in chapter 1. But as the story continues, the gospel will take more shape. It will culminate in Jesus' death on the cross for sins and resurrection from the dead. Now, in this case, the sower of the parable is Jesus. As he's standing in that boat, preaching to the crowd on the land, it's like he's throwing out seed. And then the path is those who hear the word preached, but immediately reject it. The seed never truly begins to take root. It just bounces right off that hardened, beaten down earth and is quickly taken away by birds. Jesus aligns the birds with Satan, the enemy of the gospel who wants no one to believe it. The rocky ground is those who lack depth and thus don't last. There's an initial response there, what appears to be a good start. But then as soon as any hardship or opposition come along, the second the gospel fails to fix all their worldly troubles or even leads them into even more worldly troubles than they had before. At that moment, their faith dies like a plant scorched by the sun. The thorny ground is those who might have some good soil that can support some life. However, there are other plants there competing for attention. The seed is sown. They hear the gospel, but other things take priority. These thorns block all the sunlight, absorb all the nutrients, suck up all the water, and the neglected and crowded out seed never has a chance. And then finally, there's the good soil. Those who hear the gospel, accept it, and bear fruit. This soil is tilled instead of hardened. The rocks have been cleared so the roots can go down deep. The thorns have been ripped out so all the sunlight, all the water, and all the nutrients can go to the right seed. Faith is established. It grows. And it produces a crop. Now the one part of this parable that may have seemed remarkable to the original audience is the harvest. In that world, a farmer would have considered a five-fold harvest to be a good year. But the harvest that comes from the seed of the gospel, 30, 60, 100 fold, is far greater than any farmer could ever expect. The fruit produced by the seed of the gospel, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, eternal life through Christ, that far surpasses any harvest this world could ever offer. So in a way, this parable is less about the sower, and it's more about 
the soil. We can all think of people we know who match up with the various kinds of soil that Jesus described. Maybe we can think back to which kind of soil we were a year ago, or five years ago, or 20 years ago, or 50 years ago, compared to the soil that we are today. We can think of someone we know or love who has consistently, resolutely rejected the gospel. It just bounces right off of them, like the seed hitting the path. As a result, we've grown discouraged and might even be tempted even trying to sow. We can think of the person who at one time received the gospel with joy. There appeared to be some legitimate, healthy growth there. But when they realize that following Jesus doesn't make everything easier and may even make some parts of life harder, they moved on to something else. Their roots were never really there to begin with, like the seed and rocky soil. It was only a matter of time before whatever faith they had started to wither away. And we can think of someone who hears the gospel and might like some things about it, but then other things start to take priority. When they realize that following Jesus may mean giving up old ways of thinking, old ways of speaking, old ways of living, they choose to prioritize the ways of the world. They may like some things about the seed of the gospel, but ultimately they're more comfortable with thorns. And then, of course, we think of the person who has heard the gospel, accepted it, and it's been deeply rooted in their heart and mind. That seed has grown, matured, and produced fruit in that good soil. And everyone around has been fed and blessed by the harvest God has produced in that person's life. So again, this parable is more about soil than it is about the sower. It's about the many different responses people give when the seed of the gospel is thrown their way. Just about all of us know that while many will hear the gospel, not all will receive it. It's Christian common sense. For some, there's no response at all. For others, the response appears to be real at first, but ultimately proves to be false. For others, there's an openness to it, but a choice is made to pursue something else. And for others, there's a genuine acceptance that leads to growth and endurance. None of this should seem all that shocking to us. None of it's surprising. However, there are a few more lessons in this parable that are worth exploring. We mentioned earlier that parables both reveal the truth and conceal the truth. They're stories that teach something true, but don't always come right out with it. Along those same lines, there's something else the parables do that we might not be entirely comfortable with. However, it's unavoidable in the text. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 10. And when Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. When Jesus' disciples ask him to explain the parable in a way they can understand, 
Stop talking about seeds. Stop talking about soils. Stop talking about paths and rocks and thorns and sowers. Just tell us what you mean, Jesus. He tells them that not everyone will understand. Not everyone can understand. And that's not an accident. Jesus says this is by design. Jesus' disciples get an explanation to the parable because Jesus has chosen them and called them. But others, outsiders, don't get the same explanation. Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. When God commissioned Isaiah as a prophet, God told him that few, if any, would listen to what he had to say. But Isaiah was called to preach anyway. And if the people didn't listen to him, that only served the purpose of proving how hard-hearted and deserving of judgment they really were. As we mentioned earlier, two people can hear the same parable and come to two very different conclusions. Two people can hear the same gospel and have very different responses. One person's hard heart is softened and they respond in faith. Another person's hard heart is hardened all the more, and they double down in their rejection of Christ. It's what we see with the religious leaders two weeks ago in chapters 2 and 3. So parables serve a dual purpose. They reveal the truth, and they conceal the truth. They open ears, and they close ears. Likewise, for those who hear and accept the gospel... The result is salvation. For those who hear and reject the gospel, the result is judgment. Now, of course, we don't know who those people will be. We don't know who will accept the gospel and who will reject it. We don't know who will be softened and who will be hardened. We don't know who has ears to hear and who will close their ears. We don't know whose soil will be like beaten down concrete, filled with rocks, infested with thorns, or good and fertile. That's why we, as people commanded by Christ to go out and share the gospel, people commissioned to be his sowers of his word in our world, that's why we keep throwing the seed everywhere. And we let God take care of the rest. We sow the seed of the gospel the same way the sower did his seed in the parable. We throw it indiscriminately. We preach the gospel to all who can hear, not worrying about where it lands. The way Isaiah kept preaching, even though few, if any, people listened to him, we keep sowing. We have no control over who will respond and who won't. We have no control over how true or false that response will be. But those things are not our job. We are called to sow. So we sow and we sow and we sow some more. With the belief and the assurance and the confidence that somewhere out there, God is preparing good soil where that seed can take root, grow, and produce a harvest. This parable can teach us and encourage us to keep sowing. Because you never know when God may till that path, break down those rocks, and rip out those thorns. 
As we speak, the Holy Spirit is out there cultivating fertile ground. He's convicting the world of sin. Helping people understand that there is more to life than what we see in this world. And giving people ears that they may hear. Ears they may not have had before. In order that sinners would be saved. That a harvest would be produced. And that God would be glorified. So don't give up sowing. Don't worry yourself so much about the response you got in the past. Don't fear so much about the response you might get now. Just keep throwing seed. Because God might surprise you. Earlier we read from Isaiah 55. God says in verses 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth. Making it bring forth and sprout. Giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Our job is to throw out that seed. Our job is to sow God's word and let the word do its work. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. In addition, this parable challenges us to examine ourselves, to consider what kind of soil we are. If you are good soil, if you've heard the gospel, you've accepted it, it's taken root within you, and you have seen that fruit, then praise and thank God. Because you have not done that yourself. God has helped you. The same way Nathan helped David understand his parable. The same way Jesus helped the disciples understand this parable. The Holy Spirit was at work within you. God sent someone who preached the gospel to you. And by God's grace, you had ears to hear. Left to ourselves in our sin, we are hard, rocky, thorny soil. Without God's help, Satan will snatch the gospel away from us. Hardships will discourage us and worldly desires will distract us. So praise God for making you good soil where the gospel could grow. Because you didn't do it on your own. And likewise, if you are good soil, be on your guard. Ask God to continue cultivating you. Ask him to continue giving you the things you need to produce a harvest for his glory. You need the ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Like a gardener regularly tending the ground to make it more and more suitable for life. You need the continual nutrients of God's word so that your roots can grow deeper to sustain you in times of drought. You need brothers and sisters in Christ around you to lead you to water when you're tempted to wander towards the thorns that will choke you. So ask God and trust God to continue working on you to guard you from danger and continue pruning and cultivating you. And if you're sitting here right now and you haven't responded in faith to the gospel, I pray that you would. I pray that opening up God's word today has served to soften that hard path, break down those rocks and pull up those thorns. 
I pray that the Holy Spirit has been at work preparing you for this moment. The moment when the seed of the gospel might be planted. If that's you, repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As Jesus preached in his first sermon in the Gospel of Mark. As I mentioned earlier, I'm not totally sure how beneficial my efforts to sow seed in my yard have really been. That's probably because I need to aerate my yard. I need to break it up. I need to poke holes in it. That way oxygen and water and nutrients can get down deeper into the soil and give the grass the healthier, stronger roots that it needs. I just haven't had the time, haven't had the motivation to rent the big piece of equipment to do it. But thankfully, God is a much better sower than I am. So if you have heard and accepted the gospel, praise God for his grace and ask him to continue cultivating you into good soil that produces a crop for his glory. And if you haven't accepted the gospel, I pray that you would today, that the seed might be planted, that it might start to grow, that fruit would be born, that God would be glorified, and that you would be saved. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. And like we said in the parable, we pray that your word would be deeply rooted within us. Lord, we thank you that by your grace, we've come to know you and love you and worship you. Thank you for giving us ears to hear. Thank you for throwing your word our way, putting someone in our lives who taught the Bible to us, who shared the gospel with us, someone who prayed for us, someone who walked through your word with us. Thank you for those people. Thank you for sowers of your word. And Father, I pray that as we leave here today in a few minutes, that we would go out and be sowers of your word as well. As people who have experienced the glory of knowing you and loving you and worshiping you and being reconciled to you, I pray that we would faithfully throw that seed to others, that they might come to the same knowledge and love and worship. And Father, we thank you for Christ, that ultimately it's his death and his resurrection that makes this a harvest worth having. If not for his death and if not for his resurrection, we would have no hope. We would have no joy. We would have nothing beyond this life to look forward to. But Father, thank you that he came down, that he lived and died and rose. Thank you that by your grace and by his broken body and shed blood, we can produce a harvest, not just in this life, but we can look forward to a harvest in eternity. Again, we love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.